Hello, and welcome to a very special Metacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work-related reasons. Soon as he's back, which we expect is going to be late July, early August, we will be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts on my own. And I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this episode. Shiloh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. You guys are like my first A Song of Ice and Fire podcast, so this is super exciting. <laughs> well, we're honored to have you on, or at least I am. Jeff is here in spirit, of course, as, as will be the case for the next couple months. <laughs> I'm sure he's less honored and more sarcastic. You know what? I think you hit the nail on the head there, unfortunately. But we were we've been talking about having you on for the main cast as well, which we will uh, we will yep. be doing once once uh, once Jeff returns. So today we're going to be talking about a topic near and dear to your heart, and a topic that I don't know much about beyond the margins, and I'm looking forward to to learning more and talking about. And that is the the, the topic of medievalism. Uh, before we launch into it, our usual spoiler warning: all published books, five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, sample chapters, Game of Thrones, the TV show, anything and everything. We're not going to be talking about just A Song of Ice and Fire, but we will be talking about A Song of Ice and Fire, so that applies. So, medievalism. How would you describe this term to someone who might be vaguely familiar with it or just or not really have any clue what we're talking about here? Well, the way that I usually explain it to people is we have the Middle Ages, which is the period that ran from about 500 CE to 1500, depending on how you measure these things, but, you know, (laughs) roughly speaking. And then we have all of the ways that people have reinterpreted and recast and kind of papered over the actual history with their own ideas and expectations and politics and everything else. And that's medievalism. I just remember just having the most cartoonish things taught to me about this period in history. I think by (laughs) entirely well-meaning teachers and I think adults, but I was just, maybe this was, maybe I was the last cusp of this. I don't know how common it is among younger generations, but I was, there's the, um, I was basically taught like the Middle Ages were like, you know, a Hagar the Horrible or Wizard of Id cartoon. (laughs) Like it was just, you know, there was, no one was literate and everyone was just chopping everyone's heads off all the time. And it was just like a thousand years of disease and darkness. It was like, you know, something a Sith Lord (laughs) would, would, would say. And Everybody you know, as, forgot how to read. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, as I got a little older, even as of course I didn't, you know, delve into the specifics nearly as much as you have, I, I had the automatic question of like, if that was really the case, then how are we here now? Like something, mm-hmm. what happens? Like it can't just be like a comet, like like the, the monolith from two thousand one came back and taught <laughs> us how to read again. So clearly, that's there's we have to there has to be threads between that and the you know, the also the era we kind of reduce as the Renaissance that followed. That was, you know, mm-hmm. taught to me as the time when education and, you know, sculpture and whatnot came back. Yeah. But, um, and yeah, so it's, so that process of, of why we've kind of assigned that era to, to what it is and why we've done that, I think is really interesting. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, something that has an impact on education, obviously, but also I think uh, has an impact on how we write stories set in that time or in fantasy universes that are obvious analogs for that time. Uh, so how did you how did you get into like uh, this this genre? Like how how did you start reading fantasy literature? Since that's what we're we're talking about in relation to medievalism. Oh God, I grew up 
on Fantasy Lit. I read the shit out of stuff like Tamara Pierce and mm-hmm. Robin McKinley and Patricia Reed and C.S. Lewis and even the Pern books, even though at the time I didn't realize those were sci-fi. <laughs> sure. I was just reading. It was it, it's dragons. Of course, <laughs> and, it's right there in the title. And the fire lizards, and I want <laughs> like I want twelve fire lizards of my own, please. Thank you. It's like, I wasn't a horse girl, I was a dragon girl. <laughs> and fantasy is so medieval-y. Like, all of it is pre-industrial, magical knights and dragons everywhere. So, of course, when I got to college, I wanted to kind of go to the roots of fantasy. And to my surprise, the Middle Ages are nothing like the books. Mm-hmm. There are no dragons anywhere. You say. So what I ended up doing was kind of cobbling together a field of study that let me explore how and why fantasy uses or abuses the Middle Ages and what all of that means. So I'm way less interested in whether someone's getting the Middle Ages right, because Mm. that is by definition impossible, and more interested in why they're using a medieval or pseudo-medieval society the way that they do, and what that says about the author and the author's beliefs and their society and all of that stuff. So obviously, as you found out to your disappointment, there were no dragons (laughs) back then. I think we we all went through that disillusionment. What are some common misconceptions you run up against when we when we talk about this era? What do, what do people think that's just not the case? Oh my god, there's so much. There's tons. <laughs> um, there is an entire book by Stephen Harris and Brian Grigsby that covers and debunks various things that we have popularly hmm. grown to believe about the Middle Ages, like people didn't bathe. Sure. <laughs> but I think that all of those specific ones, it's important to kind of look at that and go, okay, yes, we are wrong about the actual history. But all of those the specific misconceptions come down to how we've generally decided to cast the Middle Ages as either the barbaric age of dirt and Vikings and Goths coming to destroy your grand empire and plague, or the romantic Middle Ages of hmm. chivalry and knights and big flowy dresses and stuff. So the problem really comes when we start talking about the entire Middle Ages as one thing or another, because it was a thousand fucking years and like three (laughs) continents. That's way too much time in geography to be trying to generalize, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. That's something I hadn't really thought about, that the the popular conception of the Middle Ages is really trying to reconcile two very different concepts. Uh, you know the, the the fall of Rome and also Aquitan. Like there's, you know, there's somehow mm-hmm. we're, we've thrown these two things as if they're the same historical era. Yeah. But then yeah, a lot a lot of the history about the era, or at least the popular history, is is like this you know, overall like you know doom of Christendom narrative that I think mm-hmm. that I think we've kind of inherited. Uh, do you think? How do you think the the fantasy books you read as a kid uh, fit into that? Do you what? Do you think they were trying to hold stuff like that up, or is it you know were they just kind of carrying on? Uh, the, the popular view of things at the time. I mean, think they're. I think mostly they're pretty standard. Because um, what most of what I was reading was high fantasy. So um, 
as a scholar of it, I'm not too worried about like authenticity and are they sure, good sure. representations of the Middle Ages? Because no, of course they're not. And they shouldn't have to be. That's not the point. Uh, but yeah, I go back and reread Tamara Pierce and such all the time. They're total comfort reads now for sure. And mm-hmm. I, they might not hold up in other ways, like with diversity or gender politics or don't get me started on pern and gender politics sure. um but as medievalist texts they're they're still fine <laughs> so uh, i'm always interested about about historiography in this way because you're you're looking back at a past that is evolving but it's not like you're stuck in a moment in time like the way you look back at the past itself evolves <laughs> so uh, what is it what do you think how do you think the field of medievalism stands at the moment? Is it evolving? Do you get a sense of like there are new ideas coming down the pike? Yeah, um, I think that the idea of medievalism as a field and as a framework for studying pop culture is definitely gaining ground. Uh, when I was working on my PhD, I had to kind of create the field for myself by doing a dual focus in medieval literature and pop culture studies, which always made people go, uh... Okay, that's like two incredibly different things. And then I explain and they'd be like, okay, I can see why you're doing that. Sure. Um, I got incredibly lucky that by the time I was ready to do my dissertation, the department had gained a professor who knew what I was trying to do and had been studying medievalism and was able to introduce me to all the stuff that the other professors didn't know about yet. And it had been around since like the 70s. So <laughs> it's kind of a, yeah, that they right hadn't, about time. They hadn't yeah, gotten no it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, But now there's entire college courses being taught specifically on medievalism, and I hear more and more about it from fan analysts and podcasts like you guys and Girls Gone Canon and Learned Hands. So the idea is definitely seeping into the thoughtful part of the zeitgeist. Well, it's awesome you're able to get uh, some support and weren't just just getting those like conversation-killing glances and that it can build from there. That's awesome. So... I, I know you've uh, you've devoted such great energy and time to not just your dissertation, but also a book on the subject. So tell us about that. It's less also and more followed on. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Um, Ain't that the case? Yep. Because that's the thing that you're supposed to do as a PhD. You finish your dissertation, you turn it into a book, you publish, you get a tenure track job, and everything flows very nicely. It does not. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation, though. So. <laughs> Uh, medievalism in A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, which is the book, came out of my PhD dissertation, which was on various forms of medievalism and fantasy. And for that, I also talked about Tamara Pierce and Marion Zimmer Bradley, which gave me lots of material to talk about just about every kind of medievalism I could possibly think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I pretty much just yanked out all of the references to anyone that wasn't George <laughs> and rewrote it and restructured it a bit. And that's the book. Um, and it was at the time the only full length single author work on the topic. So it's pretty broad in general and kind of serves as a jumping off point more than anything else because i was trying to cover a lot of territory that hadn't been covered yet but that is pretty much how i tripped and fell into being primarily an aswaf medievalist there for a while um i did a bunch of articles on much more focused topics i generally try to keep my attention on the books because lots of people are working with the show the show is a hundred times more popular i think um, but if you want pure book analysis at least in the academic arena there's like three of us <laughs> That's so great. I love 
that you're able to carve out that space, even though, yeah, it doesn't have the, the obvious sensationalism of the show, but there's so much to work with, as you covered. And so how did you come to a, a Song of Ice and Fire specifically? Um, I had... So how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, were you, when you were you first reading the books, uh, when, when they're still coming out at a semi-reliable pace, or when, when was uh, <laughs> when was the first dive into um, a Game of Thrones? Do you remember? As I remember it, and this was years and years and years and years and years ago, but as I remember it, um, someone on a discussion board about um, popular fantasy stuff had mentioned, "Oh, HBO has picked up this." that they're going to adapt this thing. And I'm like, okay, I've never heard of this thing. I'm going to read it before the show because that's the kind of person that I am. It sounds interesting. Let's do it. Um, went to the store, got Game of Thrones, got through about 100 pages, went back to the store, <laughs> got the rest of the books, which at that point was up to A Feast for Crows. Sure. And then waited for Dance with Dragons. <laughs> yep. And watched the show and got very angry at the show. <laughs> but... Yeah, that's pretty much how I got into reading the books and being very, very interested. Um, and then as it came to time to start focusing on what do I want to do with my dissertation, I was like, I need to do something with this. There is so much stuff here. Oh, that's great. I remember when I first reading a, a Stephen Atwell's essays on the series and loving that that kind of academic perspective brought to the series. And I loved your stuff for the same reason. So obviously this is a broad question, but how would you say a song of ice and fire handles the handles medievalism? <laughs> oh wow, how much time do we have? As uh, much as you want. <laughs> and can I just like read the introduction of the book? Absolutely. At you? <laughs> uh, um, so a song of ice and fire is particularly interesting from a medievalism perspective for really two major reasons. One is that George's historical antecedents are really clear if you know what you're looking at. Like the Wars of the Roses and the Hundred Years' War and the Black Dinner. It's all in there. Even if you don't get into the meta-commentary from George or the fans. And then you can also dig into how he handles things like chivalry or feudalism or pre-modern slavery. And how magic changes and influences all of that. But then if you do get into the meta-commentary, as we obviously have, you have so many instances of George claiming that Aswaf is way more historically accurate than just about any other medievalish fantasy. And that is a big claim to make, mm -hmm. and definitely deserves some unpacking and interrogation. Not just Thor meme, is it though? <laughs> but also, what does he mean by accurate or authentic? And what does that look like to him? And why? And where does he get his information from? Like, for example, we have a So Spake Martin from 2016 where he specifically says that he wants to read about, quote, the juicy stuff in history and not academic tomes about the changing patterns of land use. And that's going to strongly influence how he portrays a medievally inspired world if he's not looking at the fundamentals of how the world worked, but only the big set pieces. That's a great point. I've often been, I guess, politely skeptical of some of George's <laughs> takes in that regard. Uh, you know, people always circle back to the Aragorn's tax policy thing, which I think in context <laughs> is probably, I think, George 
maybe inelegantly really talking about like tough character choices and wanting to have like, you know, complex dramas. Not really, because as you say, I don't think he actually is that interested. Like he's not writing about Thomas Cromwell here. Like that's the, you know, this is not, <laughs> that's not his focus. He, he you know, he's, he loves this setting and he, he draws from it for, for drama. I think like Littlefinger is a good example. Like obviously George enjoys like all the hints that Littlefinger has like rigged the federal government to explode in this kind of modern financial way. But I think even before the show, I think we all thought the climax of Littlefinger's story was really going to be about his relationship to the Starks and the Tullys and not not ultimately about his kind of financial meddling. Yeah. So it is – I love what you were saying earlier about how you're not interested so much in drilling to complete accuracy about the time period, but in asking the questions of why we frame it the way we do, especially since – I have to imagine a lot of it is unconscious and just stuff we've learned and developed and we don't even realize we're like I always, you know, whenever I see people talking about artists making big, coherent political statements, I often think like we should be honest that artists like a lot of people are just like picking and choosing a lot of different inspirations and ideas and images and they're not always going to like snap together into, you know, like it's Lenin's imperialism or something like they're really like they're making a direct didactic argument. I mean, we tend to not like it when artists just directly do that. Yeah. And I think so. I think George is kind of, you know, being honest in that regard when he says he's he's looking at the juicy stuff and he's he's putting <laughs> pieces together. So it is interesting to wonder why he feels the need to make the case for historical realism, especially if indeed Absolutely. Endgame is King Bran, which I'm fine with. I like, but come on, that is, that is <laughs> he's he's you know he's a fairy tale creature at this point. So that's yeah. that's not that. So I, I wonder if part of this is the automatic association a lot of people make between like gritty and authentic do you do you do you encounter that fallacy a lot when you get into these topics oh absolutely um i think that somehow and at some point and i haven't done enough cultural analysis to really figure out where and why and how and who and all of that stuff um but at some point we got it into our heads that realism means dark and bad and depressing sure and so anything that celebrates happiness or joy, by definition, can't be realistic. And then, of course, we have that whole barbaric age medievalism that right. I mentioned earlier. So that very easily slots the Song of Ice and Fire into that gritty realism issue. And, and that's so interesting to me because there are parts of the series itself that I think support that. But a lot of the stuff I love in the series has this real earnest romanticism to it, even mm, as terrible absolutely. things are happening. Like mm. the perspective is like, I mean, there's a reason that the last thing Catalan thinks is not, oh God, my society has collapsed, but not my hair, <laughs> Ned loves my hair. Like, that's not yeah. really gritty. Like, that's, that's, that's lovelorn, and that's, you know, that's, that's some real emotion coming through. It's not like, you know, it's not Warhammer 40k, which is part of what I think about with this, and I think, yeah, yeah there's definitely, there's also just a 90s streak to some of this, I think, especially given when George started writing the series, the, you know, the 90s edginess that has dated like milk in a lot of ways. I think that's part of this. <laughs> but also, as you were saying, this persistent idea of the barbaric age makes that easier. And then I think these days you compound stuff like uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies and just easy associations people draw between uh, the elevated version of whatever you love has to be the darkest possible version of it. That, that I think, association is, is burned into a lot of people's minds. And then I think there's a backlash to it. Maybe that's something that George is, is really getting at, is the association of virtue with reward. That's something that seems to annoy him when that association is made. There's that 
specific complaint he makes that it's he doesn't like it when like spunky characters are rewarded in medieval <laughs> fiction like someone's talking back to a prince and the prince goes oh what, what an interesting truth teller come come tell me more it's like that's the kind of shit that really annoys him and i think you can yeah. see that with like um Aryan bright flame and uh tansel too tall in the in the, the hedge knight do what, what do you think about that complaint is that legit or is that george <laughs> just kind of being edgy I, I think if he's making that complaint about medievalist fantasy, well, it's fantasy. It doesn't have to, and it by definition can't be completely authentic to any point in the Middle Ages. And if the author needs a pig boy back-talking a princess to make their world and story work, I say go for it. And if that's not his thing, great. There's lots of other shit to read, you know? Yeah, I guess that's true. It's a question, I guess, of what your your goal is, because as you say, it's like it's a it's a it's a mechanism to get to where he wants to lead you in the story, and if that's appropriate, it fits. And I guess, I guess a, a certain approach to this era that I think is unwise is when uh, grittiness or grimdark stuff becomes the goal in itself, and is associated with uncovering truth. Because not only is that facetious in itself, we've also been doing it long enough that it's just not revelatory anymore. Like, you know, again, we've had Warhammer for a while now. Like, you know, yeah. the, the whole mythos of Warhammer 40k, where it's like, you've, you're have you born into a grimdark universe, and so you will die. Like, I understand this was groundbreaking <laughs> in the 80s, but now I think you have to have a, a clever and specific version of it. And sometimes I feel like that's just still kind of a default, especially among a certain certain brands of a uh, of uh, a song of ice and fire fans. So there's there's a oh, question absolutely. of how a song of ice and fire handles medievalism, but then there's the much more fun question of how do a song of ice and fire fans handle medievalism? And wh- what do you think about that? Well, there's a question not in any way meant to get me in trouble. <laughs> Stirring up controversy here. I gotta do it while Jeff's gone. He's usually better at that. <laughs> Well, I think it depends on the fan, really. Um, there's a lot of variation between the point that y'all keep making about A Song of Ice and Fire being a modern book written by a modern writer for a modern audience, and then the people who excuse any problematic issues with gender or race or sexuality or the prevalence of sexual assault by arguing that that's just how the Middle Ages were. Um, as if Aswaf is some sort of unbiased history. Right. But I've noticed that that last group really isn't interested in the medieval history so much as they want people who are calling out problems with their fave to just shut up and go away and stop ruining it for them. Absolutely. But I, I think at the core, it can be really difficult, and I catch myself also having difficulty with it, keeping in mind while you're reading that this is a fictional world created out of whole cloth by a human person and you have to drill down past this is what would realistically happen in this situation to well someone created that situation and why did he do it that way yeah i think you hit on something there that of course people have pointed out is an annoying part of a lot of how we talk about fiction the you know kind of the nitpick centric kind of discourse of of taking your universe and just adding up the number of dislocations between the real world and the story as if that makes any point as if that's anything but a cinemason kind of ding and yeah i do think that that can intersect with what you were also talking about the idea that well anything any complaint you have well that's just that's just how it was in the middle ages as if yeah like the 
like like George just plunked himself down with a camera, and this is a documentary <laughs> about what he saw. Like every, every decision is being made, and it's 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 interesting to talk about why for the parts you like as well as the parts you don't like. Like I think. I think you can make a intellectually coherent case for why George doesn't really take us closer to the Dothraki and Giscari characters. I think you can say that's it's that's about Danny's perspective and how Danny, even though she likes a lot of them as individuals, kind of steamrolls everyone she interacts with and brings her. I think that's perfectly coherent. And I still think it's a bad decision overall on George's part, given that these are the most significant residents of Essos in his universe. And they're other than Miriam Osdor, they're not really given a chance to assert what they think is going on. And they're just kind of in conspiracies and kept off. And I think that is part and parcel, I think, with dealing with a genre that takes us back to a time when it would be easy to not care what someone like the Dothraki think from the perspective yeah. of the, the people George is writing about. And as he says, the story is ultimately about Westeros and events in Essos reflect Westeros. And I think that's perfectly fine, but it's just it's just not happening in a vacuum. And that's why I really like getting perspectives like yours is to remember that this is this is it's the, the difficulties of art is that it's both George R. R. Martin and his mind, but also just everything that's kind of gone into him and gone before him. And I think a lot of this comes down to what we uh, learn about the, this time period as, as kids. There was a recent um, article that came out about all the there was a bunch of senators who signed a letter decrying the 1619 project and oh teaching God, more things yeah. about slavery. <laughs> and there was an article that went through like all these senators. OK, here's. Here's the textbook that they probably were given as kids about history. And here's all the nonsense in those textbooks. And yeah. obviously, who knows what these individuals have been through since. But it's like to establish mm -hmm. like your your baseline assumptions are so dangerous, not only because they can be so fallacious, but because you don't think to challenge them. And as you were saying, it's very often the reaction is, why are you poking holes in this? Yeah. And like, you know, that can be an obnoxious reaction. But for a lot of people, it's like. It's stuff you haven't thought about since you were five. And a lot of yeah, the times... And for a lot of it, we need all of that to be true for our worldview to continue to certainly. work. So stuff that we've gotten and kind of piled on top of each other as we've learned more things, we will absolutely just reject anything that doesn't fit that and keep moving right forward with our, our beliefs about it. Absolutely. And I think everyone's guilty of that to a certain extent. I think everyone does that in their personal lives, I think, whether we want to admit <laughs> it or not. But... You know, when you study a topic like this and specifically how it relates to our stories, you see the patterns of, as you're saying, uh, trying to excuse any issues specifically on the issue of gender or race or sexuality. And I do you, I mean, do you often encounter the idea that by point by pointing these out, you're saying you hate George, or you hate the story, because that's often the oh, response I get. Constantly, absolutely. Which I think is unfortunate. Like I, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm constantly having to say, look, I love these books. They have problems. Sure. I still love them, but we do have to talk about their problems and where those problems come from, and how those problems can impact readers and the people who would relate to those problems, like sexual assault survivors sure. or people of color or whoever yeah and i mean there's i think as as has come up in recent discussions in the fandom about linda uh it's, it's <laughs> like, like you were saying there's the there's the need for certain story structures to stay how they are to support mm -hmm. clear real world opinions because it's pretty yeah. obvious with linda that she's tr she's seeking any attempt she can to back up her racism and I think there's some things very specific about, like, the need to, like, like f the fantasy Roman Empire has to be this tribute to whiteness, not just, you mm -hmm. know, the, 
Europe at the time, early at the time, but whiteness as we understand it now. The Roman Empire has to have been a tribute to that in fantasy so we can pretend that historically that's what that was and it's it's yeah. it's even just, though historically that's not what that was not the even roman remotely. empire was incredibly diverse i've i've heard the well they didn't have people of color there in the middle ages because mountains and i'm like the mountains were racist very very racist <laughs> you can go over mountains my dude they took elephants over the mountains for heaven's sakes yeah the the reasoning that people come up with for my middle ages is completely white and patriarchal it just blows your mind sometimes absolutely like you know going back then and telling someone from belgium and someone from sicily you guys are the the same and they would look at you like what, what on earth are you talk i mean they'd probably have a problem with your time machine first but then they would wonder yeah. what on earth you're talking about and at the same time of course like these books are being written in the modern day and so mm -hmm. of course those those issues seep into the text and it's just it's it's never quite a one-to-one -one relationship, and uh, I think the, the the people who insisted is I think pretty uh, pretty clearly show their colors pretty quickly. Yep. So I wanted to wrap it up with just a question: when you when you look back at these uh, at historical eras, is there something? What's something that that really like you you connect with, or you feel like you're reaching well back into the past? And what's and what's an area of history where the people just drive you nuts? So <laughs> who do you love and who do you hate in history, Shiloh? Oh goodness. Um... As far as medievalism goes, again, like I was saying, it all kind of got piled up and papered over, and you have the the Renaissance who were like, we are coming out of the Dark Ages. Everything is good now. We're going back to the Roman era, and it's lovely, and the Dark Ages were disgusting and dirty and everything. And then you have, then we get up to the fucking Victorians, man, <laughs> where they added on even more stuff, and that's where we get these weird ideas about the romanticism and all of that. And it's not just their ideas, but they would go into like archeological digs and re and try to fix things and end up breaking them. And they're like, we're going to rebuild this castle. And no, you're doing it wrong. Ah. So yeah, a lot, a lot of what we believe as modern people about the middle ages come so heavily from Victorians who they were trying <laughs> they were trying to do this historic this historicism thing and often breaking it and not yeah but that's where we get our stuff from unfortunately <laughs> yeah that's what I was trying to get at earlier it's something that I just find so fascinating and frustrating about history is that, that the people you're studying also did this so you got to reckon with <laughs> everything they made of the people before them and of themselves and you're just like you're like a like a machete hacking through vines trying to yeah. get past their own biases and like like i was saying earlier i think that's that's so great to think about it as not that you're going to finally arrive at the the idol of truth in the center but that <laughs> you will learn along the way uh, much more about the people in the past by how they told their stories and, uh, and the reason oh, and history is it. history is complicated because everybody even the people who were living at the time have their own ideas about what was happening and why and sure. who was important. So, yeah, as I've said a couple of times that it's absolutely impossible to be 100% historically accurate. And this is why, because it's all about people mm -hmm. and people having opinions and people introducing their own biases. And then, you know, 100 years later, more people come in <laughs> and, introduce, and recast it and go, this historian at the time said this, but they really meant this other thing. And it just, it all piles on, and we've all got all of that in the back of our heads now. <laughs> it's true, and you even see that in-universe with A Song of Ice and Fire, all those stories that uh, 
that don't don't quite tell the full story or just just give the one perspective. Mm-hmm. And there's that bit I love in the Night of the Laughing Tree story when Jojen interrupts me or telling the story to say, Brand, are you sure that no one's told this to you? <laughs> and that's just I feel like that's a great little moment of George telling us that there's always there's always a motivation. There's no such thing as a neutral aesthetic with with storytelling and with mm-hmm. history. There's always a perspective. And yeah, and the reason that Brandon's never heard the story is because Ned is, is hiding a secret behind that story mm-hmm. that only, you know, the reader by digging through the past can find. So I think even with even with George's kind of outlandish statements about his own work, even with the flaws in his own work, I think you can I think I I think George R. R. Martin is very interested in the processes you're talking about. And I think he, oh, he demonstrates that in his work. And I think that's that's something I love there. Yeah, there's that one chapter in a, uh, one of Sam's chapters early on in A Feast for Crows where he's talking about digging through the library and mm-hmm. going, but I mean, the maesters are like questioning all of this because you've got these stories with knights stomping around a thousand years before there were knights and people ruling for <laughs> 3,000 years. And we don't know what was happening back then. And I'm like, you're so close to getting it, George. <laughs> right. And like, that's, that's a... Even after, and even even after, even in universe after the events of a song of ice and fire are over, they will everyone will later distort it. Like there's, that's already mm-hmm. happening. When like my favorite example is when there's the the singer at the purple wedding who tells sings that song of the Blackwater where Renly as a ghost repented for rebelling against the Lannisters and came back to life. <laughs> Dick then says like Renly ever repented yep. of anything he ever did. Yeah, like, but it's just but such that... a beautiful bit of propaganda, and like that's the narrative now. And who's gonna who's yep. gonna say he's wrong? We all saw Renly's armor, so. It's, yeah, and give it a hundred years, and that song is going to be the story of how it happened, just like like Sansa's Florian and the Fool songs. Exactly. You, who's who's going to challenge it? No one. You know, everyone yeah. who was there will be gone, and even the people who were there, like Dantos, even in even in the moment, Dantos is just passing on the story of what someone else saw at the battle at the end of Sansa. Mm-hmm. So that's yep. I think George is well aware of that of how that how that process goes, and time will have his way with his story too. So thank you so much for coming on, Shiloh. I really appreciate it. I was really looking forward to, to getting into this topic. Uh, where can people uh, find your work? Well, my website is shilohcarroll.wordpress.com, and I post short essays on various medievalism topics over there, usually about one a month. I just started a series on medievalism in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so I'm looking really looking forward to digging into some of that. Um, that's also where I post writing announcements, and there is a super exciting one coming, so you'll want to watch out for that. Um, I'm also on Twitter as Medievalismish, which is super hard to spell, so I'm sure that Emmett will put it in the notes for you guys if I absolutely you want to find me. <laughs> well, thank you again so much, and yeah, everyone, uh, everyone give Charlo a follow and check out her, uh, her uh, Buffy series. That's going to be great to read that going forward. As always, everyone, you can uh, rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can find us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. As I said earlier in the episode, we're going to be keeping the uh, weekly rotating guest host going, and I'm going to be doing some audio and text posts of my own. I just put out my uh, first uh, little one on Lord of the Rings, and I'll be doing those weekly, and some more weekly stuff is going to be coming soon. And then eventually, we will let Jeff back in, reluctantly. (laughs) So thank you so much for listening, as always, folks, and uh, we'll see you next week.